0: So welcome everybody. Uh, We're gonna be hosting this chess journal webinar today. Um, Venetia was going to be the host but it appears she's having some technical difficulties. So today I have with me, Dr. Sacha and Dr. Bauer. I wasn't sure if Venetia got through introducing um, but uh, do you guys wanna take a second? Please tell us who you are, where you're from and if you have any disclosures.
1: Sure, I can start. So I'm Gretchen Sasha. I'm one of the critical care clinical pharmacists at the Cleveland Clinic, um, and I practice in the medical ICU. Thanks.
2: And hi, I'm Seth Bauer. I'm also a clinical pharmacist and medical ICU at Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio. And I don't have any conflicts of interest relevant to this presentation, but will note that I'm a consultant for Walters Kluwer that provide drug information for their
0: products, LexiComp and UpToDate. Thank
1: you. And I'll add, sorry, I forgot. I do not have any conflicts of interest to disclose.
0: Beautiful. Well, thank you both for joining us. And uh, as authors of this article, we are super excited to, uh, you know, ask you about the study, learn uh, what you were thinking. Um, But before I go ahead, I want to introduce Dr. Angel Kaws, who is our content liaison, content expert from the journal side. He brings with him a belt of critical care knowledge. Dr. Koz, do you want to tell us where you are and if you have any conflicts?
3: Thanks, Viren, for the invitation. Uh, My name is Angel Koz and I'm an associate professor of medicine at the University of Kentucky and the ICU director at the Lexington VA Medical Center. Happy to be here and I have no conflicts of interest. Beautiful.
0: All right, we'll just get started. Uh, we'll, we have some structured questions for you guys. Uh, I'll be directing them mainly at uh, Dr. Satcha. Uh, Dr. Bauer, feel free to jump in. Um, and I, it sounds like this is Dr. Satcha's baby. And uh, on that note, uh, Dr. Satcha did just deliver a baby five days back. So we are so, so thankful and excited for her. Uh, so thank you for doing this with us. Right. Uh, all right, here we go. First question. Um What I was gonna ask you is, you know my feelings on phenylephrine, but clearly you must have had feelings on phenylephrine. What made you study this?
1: Yeah, so it's a a great and very multifaceted uh, question and answer, so bear with me. Um, So at our institution in the ICUs, phenylephrine, it's the only vasopressor that's available to be given as a push dose rather than a continuous infusion. So we first had it available in the ORs and then it was requested to stock those in the ICUs as well based on provider response to their utilization in the OR. So we've now seen a practice as I'm sure many institutions have that they can relate to of bedside providers relying on these pushes for intermittent episodes of hypotension rather than starting a continuous infusion. So because of this practice of utilizing these push-dose vasopressors and the fact that it hasn't been studied, this led to what we thought was a great research question on whether or not they're actually efficacious and safe in the way we utilize them. And we know that phenylephrine itself is actually not recommended any longer by the surviving sepsis guidelines. um, So this is why we wanted to look at this individual patient population. So we also paired this with a study that relatively recently came out that looked at vasopressor utilization during a time of a norepinephrine shortage, which found that during that shortage period, phenylephrine was the most frequently utilized vasopressor agent. um, And in that time period, mortality actually increased. And we know that this is not a direct causal association between increased mortality with phenylephrine, but it did actually leave us kind of scratching our head a little bit about whether or not um, this is a safe uh, agent that we we can continue to utilize. So because we don't know much about this agent, we have very few studies evaluating its use, particularly in the septic shock population. We really wanted to evaluate how we were using it. So the, the specific goal that we were looking at at outcome was the development of hemodynamic stability because that's what we're trying to achieve when we are giving it in these acute situations. So how quickly did these patients achieve their goal map and then maintain that map without increasing um, their background continuous infusion vasoactive agents.
0: Beautiful. So um, before we go further on this, you mentioned the study, uh, which looked at phenylephrine uh, during shortages, and it was, a, it was a retrospective analysis at a population level. So before we go further, do you guys have a sense of how often phenylephrine push closing was used at your institution? Uh, was there like a pilot or did you have a sense of it from tracking data?
1: So we don't have, um rough or I should say hard numbers, but we did look at its utilization um, before we started or proposed this research question. And we found that it was at least utilized enough in, you know, several hundred plus patients through a small time frame that we were able to evaluate this and then compare this to patients who did not receive it. So I apologize, I don't have those numbers, but it was something that we did look at early. We didn't do a pilot study, but we at least looked at our phenylephrine syringe utilization.
0: Fair enough. All right, so let's have the first slide come up with the table. Um, Why don't we start with the methodology for your study, um, baseline characteristics of your groups. I know you did an unmatched and matched um, analysis, so could you walk us through that?
1: Yeah, sure. So just to briefly talk about the the methods um, in a – quick blurb. So this was a retrospective observational. It was a cohort evaluation. Um, We had nine hospitals throughout our enterprise of the Cleveland Clinic system um, looking at all types of ICUs except for cardiac ICUs. Um, And we wanted to, again, look at this question only in septic shock patients. So we utilized the CDC definition of an adult sepsis event to define those patients and then divided them into two cohorts. And you can see the cohorts here on the slide. So those are patients that received a phenylephrine push prior to the initiation of a continuous continuous infusion norepinephrine or those that just went on to receive continuous infusion norepinephrine without any type of a push dose phenylephrine. Um, So patients had to have received this within the phenylephrine push dose within 60 minutes before up to two hours after that continuous infusion um, was started. So this is a general gist of who we included. um, And because confounding um, can definitely occur in this setting. We did a couple of things um, to try to account for that. So first was we did a propensity score matched analysis which you can again here see we have unmatched and matched groups on here. Additionally, we evaluated our um, primary outcome the time to hemodynamic stability at hour three and we also looked at hour 12 as well in a multivariable logistic regression and then also as a time to event outcome utilizing a multivariable Cox regression. So what we found here um, looking at the matched and unmatched groups is there's not a a huge uh, chunk that I want to pull out from this baseline characteristics, but more so just looking at the, you can see in the unmatched population, they were very different at baseline. And again, we we know and assume that there was going to be some confounding by indication that sicker patients might get those phenylephrine doses where less sick patients would not. And you can see after matching those patients were, were much more well balanced overall. So we used the standardized mean difference to compare those. And you can see that the, that difference uh, dramatically decreased. So we had what we um, perceived as some relative good matching and made a more homogenous patient population to compare.
0: So I also uh, want to, if you move to the next slide, I also want to highlight about the patients that were excluded, and that's not on this slide, but 1,700 patients were excluded because they were already receiving continuous infusions of phenylephrine, um, just give the audiences an idea about concomitant use, um, and 370 odd patients received these pushes an hour before or two hours after. So what's? Uh, why did you include people who got phenylephrine pushes an hour before or two hours after? What
1: was the logic behind that? Yeah, great question. So we gave this wiggle room or this leeway of this range of when the patient could receive the phenylephrine push. Our intent was to have patients who received the dose prior to the uh, continuous infusion. But what I'm sure everybody is very aware of and, and can experience at their institution is that when these drugs are utilized in push form if you have them available to you, it's in an acute setting. It's not something that we have time to make a decision, put an order in and and think about it and wait on it. So at our institution especially, we often see these orders go in um, retrospectively. So after the fact, essentially the the drug is already given at our institution, um, these syringes are located in our automated dispensing cabinet, so they are on override as well. So a provider can ask them to be administered. A nurse can go get them and it can be administered to a patient before it's ever even ordered and documented in the medical record. So because of that, and because the um, documentation might not reflect the exact moment that the patient received the drug, it might be off a little bit just because of that little lapse in time, we wanted to give that leeway of 60 minutes before up to two hours after to be able to capture what's actually happening in that timeframe.
0: And
2: before we move on to the one thing I'll add about the phenylephrine infusions were these were patients receiving a phenylephrine infusion at any point during their shock state. These were not patients receiving phenylephrine um, early during their shock states. And the reason we made that decision to exclude those patients was we wanted to try to eliminate the effect of the phenylephrine infusion potentially leading to a negative outcome um, based on the study that we previously
0: discussed. Dr. Koz, any comments on that? You're muted, Dr. Koz.
3: Yeah, I should have learned this after a year of Zoom meetings, but apparently I haven't. So, no, I wanted to commend the authors for me. A great study. And this is a very important clinical question that sometimes we struggle with. So, and my question to, to you guys is, in with regards to the use of um, the phenylephrine as intermittently throughout the course, why do you think that happens that frequently or as frequently as it does, as opposed to maybe increasing the the, the rates of um,
1: so norepinephrine, I think,
3: which is typically the...
1: Yeah, so I think um, what I've seen at least is, or I should, I should actually say, I think it's all culture. So I think that um, for our institution, it's the culture and has been, ingrained for better or for worse, that if a patient is acutely decompensating, the quicker thing to do is to pull a um, push dose rather than to string up a bag of norepinephrine, which would be something that I would recommend. I will also say, at least historically, um, we did not always have continuous infusion vasopressors readily available at the bedside. Um, in current state, they are all available in our ICUs, in the, at least you say, in, in most ICUs, in the automated dispensing cabinet. So they're relatively easy to grab and string up. So we're hoping that we can change culture, but I think that because they were not always readily available, and we did have these syringes um, in our automated dispensing cabinets for um, a good chunk of the time in the past, during the study period at least, um, that's why they were uh, relied on rather than just making or ordering a bag.
3: Yeah, and I think it's a whole lot to do with the convenience because our trainees uh, training two sites. One site has this as an option versus the other one who doesn't. And it is very interesting how they grouch a lot in the setting where we don't have it because it actually takes a little bit more work to try to figure out how to stabilize the patient uh, I mean, with the vasopressor. So it's a matter of, I think a lot of convenience, but I mean, I think your, your study has shown some light as far as maybe this is, may not be the best approach, so.
0: Perfect, so on that note, Dr. Sucha, is tell us was this a retrospective collection of data? Was it prospective? Um, how did you guys, uh, you know, collect the data? Or what time frame? Was there any particular, you know, ups and downs during those time frames? So this was a
1: retrospective evaluation. Um, I would classify it as an internal large database in that um, we pulled all of the data from our electric medical record. There was no hand charting or hand um, manual extraction done. It was all collected from discrete data. Um, We looked at patients from January 2012 up through November 2017. This was as far back as our um, electronic medical record data is available at the majority of the institutions that were included in this evaluation. Um, So we screened patients. All electronically included them, and then collected the data on those included patients um, throughout uh, if they were included.
0: Right. So, tell us what was the what were your main outcomes you looked at? Especially, you know, I know you would like to tell us about the three hour outcomes, the twelve hour outcomes, overall mortality, and then twenty eight day. So, what did you find?
1: Yeah, so what we found, um, at least looking at our primary outcome, which was hemodynamic stability at three and then 12 hours. So we did see that on after matching that our patients um, did, uh, there was a higher rate of achievement of hemodynamic stability at hour three in those who did receive a phenylephrine push, but this was not seen or sustained at hour 12. And then again, this was univariate analysis, which is right here on the slide, not our um, multivariable adjustment. But also looking um, and wanted to point out that the mortality was also higher in those in the group of patients that received a phenylephrine push. Again, this is in our matched patient population. Um, so again, unadjusted analyses, but things that we definitely thought we should further look into and do a multivariable adjustment on, which is on the next slide too, and we can talk about that.
0: There you go. So let's pull up the next slide. And if you could tell us about, you know, you did mention what you adjusted for prior. So, what were the where would you where where did you see the significant differences?
1: Yeah. So here, um, similar to what we found in the univariate analyses, we found that. Our multivariable logistic regression found that there was an association with hemodynamic stability the odds, I should say the odds of developing hemodynamic stability at hour three in patients who received a phenylephrine push. But again, this was not sustained at hour 12. And importantly, we conducted these time-to-event analyses utilizing a multivariable COX regression, and we entered time-varying covariates into the models because we wanted to try to avoid the potential for any immortal time bias. And these analyses did showed that there was no difference in time to achievement of hemodynamic stability, either at hour three or at hour 12. And then very importantly, again, we found that I, that a receipt of a phenylephrine push was associated with an increased odds of ICU mortality in this patient population. Um, so that was also something that was um, important to pull out, but not associated with time to death at 28 days, but um, that odds of ICU mortality is important to, to note.
0: So I guess we could take an unscheduled break in Dr. Cause if you want to ha- if you have questions about outcomes here. I wanted to, I wondered if you had any postulations on why, first of all, there is this difference in achieving hemostability better when you use pushes at first three hours, and then you kind of don't see that difference. And similarly, why do you think there is an increased in ICU mortality when you use the pushes and then n- not much of a difference at 28 days? Two separate questions.
1: So I think um, from my perspective at least I think what we're seeing here is this very short uh, duration of action of phenylephrine i'm not surprised to see that it has um, no effect or impact on hemodynamic stability at hour 12. i'm actually a little bit surprised to see there was any hemodynamic response at hour three because of how quickly it works but again not surprised that there is a discrepancy just because of how quickly um, this agent works so to me, I'm not surprised by that finding. And then when we saw the ICU mortality outcome, I think what we're seeing, or I should say I, I hypothesize, and, and I, I don't have an answer for why we're seeing this increase in ICU mortality, but I always am wary with phenylephrine in patients particularly who have any type of cardiogenic component to their shock status. And we were able to capture the patient's baseline ejection fraction and found no difference between our patient groups, which is at least comforting knowing that that is not a baseline confounder. So they were... had similar cardiac function, and we still saw this. What I'm wondering, though, is because all we have of cardiac function is their ejection fraction. We don't actually know if the majority or any of these patients or who had a cardiogenic component to their shock. It, It makes me wonder if there was a detriment with the use of phenylephrine in these patients because maybe there was some type of cardiogenic component and it is actually reducing their stroke volume and reducing their overall cardiac output leading to this result. So that that to me is is one of the concerns that I bring home from this.
3: Yeah, I'm actually not surprised at all by the lack of hemodynamic instability at 12 hours, I think, I mean, the, it makes sense that at three hours, you would accomplish that because I mean, you're giving a, introducing a new drug to try to accomplish that. But I mean, in a world where this intervention would not be available, probably what would happen was increasing the dose of the baseline suppressors, which may or may have not been done in these patients that received the phenylephrine. So I'm not surprised to see that at 12 hours, the effect uh, went away. And it is important also to remember that Although some patients with sepsis may have a normal cardiac function at baseline, there is a component of sepsis-induced cardiomyopathy that may ensue as a result of sepsis that may not be known because in, we're not following the cardiac function continuously on these patients that may uh, actually have a negative impact from the use of phenylephrine.
0: So I see that is back. Manish, I'm so sorry. I know these kind of tech ups and ups and downs can be a little distressing. But welcome back. Uh we uh Doctor uh, you know um and Bauer got us through the outcomes, uh, why they think there was differences acutely between three and 12 hours and then the mortality of difference within ICU stay in 28 days. I was about to ask Dr. Bauer what he thought because he did mention he's bringing the long-term perspective in the study. So I wondered if he wanted to add something and then um, you can take away. I was going to ask them about limitations next. All yours.
4: Thank you, everyone. My apologies on the technological issues that we're having, but I think that is an excellent question by you, Varen. And Dr. Bauer, if you feel free to answer, and Dr. Sasha, feel free to include. So,
2: yeah, thank you. I agree with all of the thoughts that Dr. Sasha mentioned about, and Dr. Cause as well, about the three hours versus the 12 hours and why we saw a positive odds ratio on one and and didn't detect a difference in the other. I think the ICU mortality piece is is quite intriguing and, um, again, postulating here, but I don't know if this is an effect of the rapid rise in afterload with any vasoactive push or if this is a function of phenylephrine itself. And remembering that phenylephrine is, is essentially a pure alpha-1 agonist. And so it doesn't have any chronotropic or inotropic effects. And that, that may be part of it, or the other part may just be that, that rapid rise in and, uh, and SVR and subsequent decompensation. So I, I agree with all of the thoughts that have been mentioned. What was uh,
4: the main impotence or the drive for this study. It's very interesting. And I think there's a lot of implications of it. I'm sure we're going to get more into that, but just want to kind of know what kind of drove the thoughts for it.
1: Yeah, so we we briefly talked about this earlier too, but to kind of go into it further, it was a, a practice that we have seen at our institution with utilizing these push-dose vasopressors in the ICU and un, very limited to no data on this population and the utilization of these push-dose pressors in pet particularly in the patients with septic shock. And so it was something that we wanted to tackle and look at to see if it was safe and or efficacious. And um, we mentioned that there was an earlier study looking at a norepinephrine shortage, which showed increased utilization of phenylephrine during that time and increased mortality. So making us even further want to evaluate the fact that we utilize phenylephrine and push dose form and, and to see if it was safe and effective.
4: And going forth, what did you feel were the – and you probably already kind of touched on this earlier, but um, some of the strengths are – and I think you got into some limitations of the study also.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So first, I'm, I'm just going to be very clear that this study, is retrospective, like I mentioned, and it is inherently limited by its retrospective nature, and then its reliance on medical charting. Uh, there's also always the possibility of residual confounding of of factors that we just could not account for. We, we kind of, Dr. Cause mentioned as well, that we don't check and monitor patients' cardiac function continuously in any manner. And so that would have been one thing that in the ideal setting we would know and be able to monitor, but unfortunately retrospectively can't. So I think these are really some of our biggest limitations and and does result in a more hypothesis generating study. But with that said, I do feel like we did all that we could with the data that we had and within our abilities to account for these confounders. Um, So we did that strict propensity score matching and multivariable analysis and even attempting to account for the potential of immortal time bias by conducting these multivariable Cox regressions utilizing time-varying covariates. And I really do also think that our biggest strength just lies with attempting to answer this novel question that hasn't been evaluated yet in the literature. So at least we have something to go on.
4: Dr. Bauer, your thoughts on the strengths and limitations of the study?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that the the strengths Dr. Sushin. Nicely highlighted, I, I and the limitations as well. Like I think the limitation is also is that recognize that this is only a septic shock population, and all of our patients ended up receiving a norepinephrine infusion, and so that use of vasoactives in say the operating room or paired procedurally when we know we know a patient's going to have transient hypotension. I don't think our data. Um, fill in any of the gaps of knowledge there. But I think that in patients that do have sepsis, we often want that quick effect or the quick win of seeing the blood pressure go up. And our data suggests that this may not be the the right solution. And and I think that the the strength is trying to really hone in on a population where this drug may have uh, pluses and minuses. I think I think the limitation here is that again we can only speak to one vasoactive drug in one way of administering it, and the limitation is that we can't opine on, say, norepinephrine pushes.
4: I agree. I think that your study is very interesting, and I think it has a lot of implications um, for clinical practice. So. What did you feel like are the major um, ways that you would change clinical practice based on your study and has your institution adopted that?
1: Yeah, so um, currently we have not changed our clinical practice. It is gonna be a big culture shift at our um, institution. But I will say that we are undergoing in our medical ICU that is a um, re-evaluation and and attempt to create algorithms for how we treat all of the various shock types. And this is one of the components that, um, especially Dr. Bauer and I and and our other study colleagues are looking to um, incorporate into how do we use these and into our algorithms and and addressing should phenylephrine be the agent that we have as a push dose vasoactive agent? Um, Should we be talking about utilizing norepinephrine as a a push dose, if anything, or completely removing the ability to give a push dose because our continuous infusion vasopressors are available in our automated dispensing cabinets? So no changes yet, but they are in the works. Um, If it were um, up to me on based on how this study went and how I be- feel about phenylephrine and about push-dose vasopressors in practice. I I don't feel that we are going to be able to get away from push-dose vasopressors again because of that huge culture. And I agree there there might be some settings in which we do believe periprocedurally, like we're talking about, that their patient is going to experience transient hypotension and, and we don't want to string up a, a full bag Cautious of having as a patient in the medical ICU, at least, like um, excluding OR in other areas. Um, but I think that we should discuss and consider changing our agent to something like norepinephrine. Would be my preference.
4: Dr. Barr, your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, I really don't have much to add. I I think. Um, This started as a practice when we didn't have continuous infusion vasoactives readily available, and now that we have them readily available, I think we need to go back to the drawing board and say, what do we think is the optimal approach? And based on these data, I I think we have at least some evidence that suggests that phenylephrine pushes are probably not the best answer, and clearly not definitive with all the limitations we've mentioned with uh, with this study, but... I think it, it's definitely something that we need to re-examine, both post-dose, vasoactives at all, and secondly, if the answer is has to be yes, then which drug?
0: So on this note, I just wanted to quickly bring in a question from the chat. So this question actually pertains to the figure one where we talked about enrollment, right? So this question specifically, and I'm going to read off from Carrie says, and they're clarifying the phenylephrine pushes were not typically used early in the shock period and other vasopressors would likely have already been initiated. Is that correct? Because, Or was mostly used procedural such as peri-intubation, post-surgical or just acute worsening of clinical status?
1: Yeah, great question. So to clarify, so all of the intent was to capture patients who were getting a phenylephrine push and then went on to receive a continuous infusion um, norepinephrine um, agent. So the they were not. The intent was not to grasp periprocedural. procedural Every single patient went on to receive a continuous infusion norepinephrine. So this was not transient episodes of hypotension. These were patients with um, the clinical criteria to meet septic shock. Um, so we feel confident that we were able to capture a septic shock patient population, and with our timing of the window of when they received a phenylephrine push, it put them right at or before the time that the continuous infusion was initiated. Anybody who received a phenylephrine push outside that window was excluded from this evaluation.
0: So, patients potentially basically in true fluoride shock. So, and I think this bolsters your point that you were saying earlier that, you know, be sometimes temporize and hope for reversal, but truly we're missing the early full-blown shock states. So, that's fair. Andrew makes a Point which kind of ties into this, uh, which is the use of push dose pressures. So he says in porcine models, subjects that were preload dependent, they had a decrease in cardiac output after bolus of phenylephrine was used. On the other hand, if they were preload independent, they had an augmentation of cardiac output. So he says in this study, if push dose phenylephrine is used for convenience, you may be capturing the effect of implementing a pressor before a patient is fluid repleted in the context of altered Frank-Starling forces. Now, I will request that we not devolve into discussion of whether the Starling's curves exist, because I know that's a real discussion, but he makes a good point. Do you think these could potentially be patients that were tank, quote unquote, tank empty, and we hit them early, falsely elevated pressures,
1: yeah, I mean, I, I think that's always a possibility. Um, we looked at at least fluid administration; it was similar between groups, but still, if, if this, we don't have a great grasp of the patient's fluid status, I should say, and in the where they are on the Frank Starling curve. I won't argue it. <laughs> I'll say where they are on the curve. Um, we don't we don't have the ability to capture that data, so it is potentially likely that maybe that is what's happening. And, and it goes along to the other thought process that, again, we don't know their cardiac function. So maybe they're getting, there, there was a study of patients who had reduced stroke volume after phenylephrine utilization in those that had a low cardiac output or cardiac function at baseline too. So I think both of those are definite possibilities of what could be happening in this population, which again, to me, enforces the fact that should we be blindly grasping for phenylephrine as the agent when there are some populations in which it might be harmful to utilize that drug.
0: Perfect. I'll let Venetia um, continue from here. We have one final slide that we should discuss, which is your uh, figure two. Venisha, all yours, if you have any particular questions.
4: Yeah, we were just interested in this figure about the heart rate and the focus on it for the um, initiation up to twenty-four hours after starting fentanyl um, phenyleph- and after an And you had actually quite a few different figures for heart rates and um, comparing with depressors. This one, I think, specifically was um, interesting and impactful to me. Would you like to discuss a little bit more about why sure. you included this in the study?
1: Sure. Um, I'll, I'll first also just say this is, this figure has um, first and foremost, why I love um, these, what I call again, large database studies where we pull all these data from our electronic medical record, because we get every single heart rate the patient has ever experienced after a certain time point. So we were able to graphically depict this and look at all of the patient's heart rates. And we looked at other factors as well, but the heart rate was the one that was at least most impactful for us to include in the main body of the manuscript. And you can see right after vaso, after shock onset, I should say, there was a significant difference in the slope of the patient's heart rate between these two patients group patient groups in that those that received a phenylephrine push had a more pronounced reduction in their heart rate within the first 24 hours hours after their shock onset. But it was minimal. It was a seven beat per minute reduction versus a six beat per minute reduction. So hard to know if that's clinically significant. But again, because of the low number of patients once matched, that might be uh, the reason why we're seeing such a, a small Difference, But I think that it's, it's definitely something profound and also adds to our theories that maybe there is something to say about this impact on the patient's cardiovascular function.
3: I just had a comment slash question for, for the authors. And, uh, and I'm just going to play David's advocate and say that maybe for those who are on the other side of the fence that are strong advocates of phenylephrine, that maybe the data of a retrospective study is not enough to change practice. And I mean, there's some truth to that. However, if we were to look at an ideal scenario in the future, how uh, do you have any plans on how to maybe um, try this hypothesis in in a prospective fashion and maybe come up with a more, more solid answer for this question?
1: Yeah, I think that's a, a good question. Um, and something that I struggle with when I conduct uh, various retrospective evaluations, which are definitely right now the the vast majority or all of my research is, is all retrospective in nature, um, is how do we then take this from hypothesis generating to actually something that we can implement in practice? And I think first and foremost, um, it's looking into and evaluating our retrospective data that we have published and not pushing it to the side is evaluating, did the authors attempt to evaluate all confounders and did they do their due diligence in that manner? And I I feel like we did. So that's why I struggle pushing the data aside um, like, like I feel is often tend to be done with retrospective data. So with that being said, I do feel that we can take some caution from these data. But how to implement that in the future is is a really great question. Um, I think this is something, if there are institutions that feel very strongly about utilizing push dose pressers, I think then it's something that they need to discuss as a surgery agent. And and maybe there needs to be some type of a multi-center collaborative study like we have with a lot of these um, large organizations and networks where they do um, a pragmatic study design where some institutions utilize norepinephrine, some institute as push dose and some institutions utilize phenylephrine or um, randomize this in some capacity. I I think that that is what should be done. Now, will it be done? It's a very big undertaking for this type of question. Um, And because of that feasibility, I, I think I just encourage everyone to not push the data aside and at least think twice about utilizing push those phenylephrine, if that answers the question for you.
3: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think there was a great point earlier that we do not know whether this is an effect of push those vasopressors or an effect of push those phenylephrine. And I think, I mean, if an an ideal world that we would get all the funding to get the study would be uh, push those phenylephrine, push those norepinephrine, which is probably the one that is most frequently used versus what will be usual care with, I mean, maybe just titration of the continuous infusion of, n- of norepinephrine. But we I mean, we don't live in an ideal world, so that's unlikely to happen. But I, I certainly uh, agree with you that the data from retrospective studies are really important in this case. I think should be enough to give us pause, to think twice whether that is the best approach and how we should manage, especially patients who have a hypotension as they are already on vasopressors, because I don't know that a quick fix is the solution. Uh, is convenient, but it's not necessarily the best solution. I can understand maybe why peri-procedurally this maybe uses a quick fix because we expect the transient hypotension may happen and we may want to reverse that quickly. But in a patient who is already on, on a trajectory with vasopressors, when they develop sudden hypotension to just use a quick push and then move on, uh, I think that is something that we should definitely consider twice before doing that in the future again. And and your study highlights that very important. So here's the quick thing, right? It's
0: using presses situationally, as somebody mentioned in comments before, is one thing, right? Very procedural. Even for that, I'm not sure. But anyway, something that you think is short-term. I understand using push dose presses. Your average duration of shock, depending on which study you're looking for in sepsis, is um, anywhere from 30 to 60 hours, right? Or longer as we all are very aware. So help me understand before we conduct bigger trials uh, and I'm obviously declaring my stand on this issue. Where is the equipoise? Why are we using an agent with such a short mechanism of action to deal with the condition that clearly is, mu- is going to outlive this?
1: I'm on the same page as you are. I'll say that. But to answer the question, I think two things. I think culture and I think um, convenience. I think it's easier to grab a, and I should say, um, I don't necessarily think this, but I think it is often easier for providers um, and bedside practitioners to grab a syringe of a push dose vasopressor than it is to string up a bag of norepinephrine. And that might be the case. But if you have both available to you in your automated dispensing cabinets, I would argue, is that the case? Um, So I I fully 100% agree. I, I don't know if in this patient population, those who go on to receive a continuous infusion uh, vasoactive agent for a relatively prolonged period of time, it, it doesn't make sense to me, unless again, you are really in a situation in which you cannot get that continuous infusion agent. Um, but we we often, I'll give them the benefit of doubt. we can't necessarily Always predict which patients that's going to be. Um, it might be a transient episode, so I, I can empathize at least and see that side of the stamp, the story. Um, but I I agree overall with you. I I am leaning more and more towards just grab the bag, <laughs> grab the bag if you have it. So
0: on that front, um, and I, I and if uh, this is not covered in your study, I'll say it up front. So I'm leaning on all of you guys' experience. Venetia, feel free to jump in as well, is 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 a bag of norepinephrine that much more expensive than, say, you know, to stock, to stock than, say, a stick of phenylephrine? And if you don't have an as that's okay. I'm just curious. To stock and carry and to replace regularly, you know, all the things that go with stocking something in an ICU, is it that much of a difference?
1: I don't know the exact answer. I don't... I don't believe so from a cost perspective, and Dr. Bauer might have more insight into that, but I will say from a storage perspective, that could be an argument, Um, especially if you are grabbing a bag and stringing a bag of norepinephrine for every patient, you're wasting that bag. If it doesn't end up getting used, if it only gets used for a couple of minutes, you're wasting the lines, the tubings, which to me is not as significant, but um, you're could potentially start depleting your bags of norepinephrine on the floor. And I'm assuming most institutions, at least at mine, we are we probably have less bags of norepinephrine readily available than we do number of phenylephrine syringes. But I feel like not many people think about that aspect of it. Um, maybe pharmacists or, or us here on the call would, but I, I don't know if I think that that is leading into why someone might grab a syringe versus a bag, but. I could
0: be wrong. Fair enough. So then the third thing, we I, I'm really still trying to keep an open mind. So the third thing that I always worry about, right? Uh, this comes from being on the PNT committee. You learn you're, you're, you learn, you're forced to learn to think about all aspects of operationalizing care, right? Including keeping the patient in the center of it. So uh, are you aware of any data on the safety of push dose pressers? I know there's studies done in ERs. Um, you know, uh, do you know about, errors while building medications and while you're answering that there's a question in the chat that pertains to this saying have you looked at the exact dosage of the phenylephrine push so clearly you're using the sticks which are standard dosing if you could tell us that if you know the top of your head and then if not what dosages are commonly used and how easy are they to make
1: yeah, so um, I'll try to answer all those pieces. If I don't get out to all of them, let me know. So at our institution, our phenylephrine syringes are, we, we batch them in our IV room and then they're available, like I mentioned, the automated dispensing cabinet. So they're 1000 microgram syringes at a concentration of 100 mics per ml, they're 10 ml syringes. Um, typically they're often given anywhere from 100 to maybe, maybe 300 um, mics at the most, per dose, um, but it's more often that they're given in 100 microgram increments. Now to answer the question of if, if we've looked at the exact dose of phenylephrine push, now this is one of those questions that I feel like can, it's, it's just raw for easy to answer with when you have all of your electronic medical data or electronic medical record available to you. I would, I would love to be able to answer this question. We have not looked at this. And the reason for this is because it is often at our um, center that, the patients might receive more than one dose so they might receive a hundred and then a hundred again and then a hundred again all within maybe 10 15 20 minutes of each other and they're often not, not always ordered separately so they might just say 500 mics were given in the last hour because of this i don't personally feel confident that we can evaluate and answer that question. I think it is a great question. I would love to be able to do something like that. But because our documentation of our doses are not always clean um, in that each dose is documented, I don't feel confident that we can answer that question retrospectively. Did I answer all of the components of that question?
0: Yes, better than I remembered my own question. <laughs> yes.
4: So to this question is but to both authors, did you feel and you highlighted and alluded to earlier on, do you feel like this specific study is a springboard for other studies um, relevant to this? Because I feel like there is a lot of actual conversation that is going to be brought about from this study about other things that can be done with, that we've just sort of highlighted.
1: Yeah, I do. I think that, um, I think it's it's never been studied before that I'm aware of. And I think I, I wonder if that's just the We can't study it. We can't look at it. It's just culture. Why look at it? But I think that if anything, the author or readers should look at the study and see, wow, that's a question and something that we do every day in clinical practice and have never questioned it before. So I encourage people to to think outside the box and, and evaluate them knowing there's limitations and trying to adjust for them as much as they can. You can't always, I have Learn this, but through my retrospective research, you cannot always answer every question you want to in a retrospective manner and you need to know when to let it go. And I've done that. Um, but I think that this should be a platform to, to move forward. I, if there are other institutions that are looking at this saying, gosh, who would push phenylephrine? I would never do that. We push norepinephrine here. Publish that. Evaluate that. Copy our methods, improve on our methods. I encourage everyone to do that. I think we need more data like this because I do think this is a much more common practice than people might realize. And if you have an electronic medical record data, you can go ahead and capture that and evaluate and study it.
2: Yeah, the only thing I'll I'll add to that, I I agree with all of what Dr. Sasha said is, I, I think there's a lot of literature now highlighting the importance of achieving adequate blood pressure early in patients with shock. And I think that's a lot of the impetus of, I want a quick win here. I want to give a, a push of any vasoactive to achieve that near-term goal that we know is important. I would just say, at least in our institutions, the way to achieve that goal is, uh, probably not a phenylephrine push. And if folks are using that as the argument, I I think it's a great argument, but just wonder the path to get there may be something that needs to be reevaluated. And for us, um, definitely need to reevaluate a phenylephrine push the path to get there.
3: I just had a couple of comments uh, uh, on what has been said. I think first and foremost, it is important to remember that the most recent guidelines which uh, from sepsis, which are almost five years old, uh, there should be one, one another set coming in next year, did not even recommend phenylephrine as an option for management of septic shock. So let's begin with that. And we are using that medication in a push fashion, which is a complete different mechanism, which has its own problems. And maybe not even the best drug to use at baseline, nonetheless, even worse when we use it in a push fashion. And and the other comment that that I had was that it is important to realize that we do want to accomplish uh, normal tension as soon as possible, but I think that the how matters. And the push fashion may actually get us there a lot quicker but not necessarily uh, maybe the best, uh, the best way to do it because patient the, the pathophysiology of hypotension in sepsis is multifaceted, has to do with uh, volume depletion, has to do with vasodilation and also with myocardial dysfunction in some instances. So all of those need to be kept in mind. And while a push of uh, phenylephrine may make the number look better, may not necessarily be treating the underlying cause of the hypotension.
4: Well, we wanna thank the authors for joining us today and Dr. Cause, um, Dr. Sasha, Dr. Barak, Dr. Cause for this really interesting discussion of this very interesting study. Um, just to kind of close up, I feel like it has changed my implications for clinical practice. So we hope that as a takeaway, this is something you think about for your institution and how you will approach shock when it comes with phenylephrine. Um, and then going forward as Dr. cause mentioned with the new substance guidelines where it's not even gonna be a presser that's available. So um, we hope that this has been something that you're able to take away and um, a change your practice at your institution. And thank you for joining us today. Thank you again, Dr. Sasha, Dr. Bauer and Dr. cause And from Vera and I, thank you again. And thank you everyone for your patience with technical issues. So I uh, appreciate it and have a good evening. Thank you. Thanks everybody.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having us.